we're really very keen to have beavers back in the landscape at Horsewater. So a big part of our work is wetland restoration. So we're blocking up dams, particularly in kind of peatland areas. Beavers would do that work for us for free and more effectively, and they would maintain the dams in, in perpetuity. So, you know, just as a kind of effort saving device, we would we would love to see beavers back. And welcome to The Lodgecast, a nature and wildlife podcast brought to you by the Beaver Trust. I'm Sophie Pavel. And I'm Eva Bishop. Each episode we bring you the latest news from the Beaver Trust as we welcome beavers back to our rivers to restore our countryside and create resilient landscapes. And we also explore the state of nature in the UK and speak to fascinating experts and inspiring individuals along the way. Today, for our final episode on beavers and farming, we're joined by the author of Wild Fell and RSPB site manager at Horsewater in the Lake District, Lee Schofield. Hello, Eva. How are you doing? Hi, Sophie. Good, thank you. Yes, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm a bit chilly at my desk, but uh, slippers are on, socks are on, and coffee is nearby. So oh, that sounds cosy. <laughs> and from cosy to mountainous, we're thinking about the Lake District today, one of my favourite places. What does that mm. conjure for you? Oh my goodness, so much. The Lake District featured in many a, a happy, <laughs> in inverted commas, uh, many a happy family camping episode. I think there's a, I have a distinct memory of a few things, but one that really sticks in my mind is we we had a very windy putting up the tent fun time <laughs> and not only did we we just got back from the camping shop to double up on our peg so every single peg was doubled up with another peg because it was so unbelievably windy and then a particularly bendy pole the elastic inside snapped and so oh. um one of the dads who we were with two families together uh, used to be in the army in New Zealand and he was like no worries <laughs> Sophie's got the longest <laughs> hair we'll just get one of her hairs and uh I'm going to tie it to the end of the broken elastic, no problem. And uh, and we did, in fact, do that. I think I had a good chunk of maybe five or six hairs and we we tied it to the broken bit of elastic and joined them together. And um, I, I, I may or may not still have a slight bald patch, but um, <laughs> nothing like making do in the Lake District. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What about you? Survival of the hairiest. Um, <laughs> I have just, I love the Lake District, but we spent many autumn holidays there and um the place i go straight to is soggy cheese sandwiches on a wet oh. walk oh lovely <laughs> wrapped in foil i presume no no they were clean oh. film every day oh. so we went to we went to the same little collection of holiday cottages with friends mm. about four other families and they would make your packed lunch for you when you go out walking which is very um oh, very wow. privileged and, and lovely and but it was the same cheese and tomato sandwiches and I hate tomatoes and they always used to come out <laughs> wet <laughs> because mm. it was so wet which is one of the beautiful things about the Lake District and I look back very fondly on it now but as a child I used to yeah. I think, whinge most of the time mm. so do you have a parents isn't it whenever anyone has a cheese and tomato sandwich do you instantly get transported back <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> you're suddenly wet <laughs> right Soggy, like, uh, um anyway it is a good topic for our final episode of series four which has gone by quite quickly actually um but we've it had has. some fantastic chats and uh been it's been 
fab to focus on beavers and farming. Well, yes, but it's not over yet, though. This is the final episode, and it is a special one. We've got a really fun one for you today, listeners. Uh, Not that the others aren't fun, of course, but we are travelling virtually to the soggy, beautiful, wonderful Lake District to chat with the amazing Lee Schofield, who is not only a brilliant man in his own right, but he is in, through his work, is in this unique position of regularly interfacing between the farming and the conservation world on a daily basis. He really, truly lives the definition of boots on the ground, but is hugely experienced in working on the front lines here. And so we thought he'd be the perfect person to help us tie this wonderful series on beavers and farming all together in a neat little package for you. Excellent. And it is a hard topic to get right, isn't it? When you've got different sides of of the people aiming at the same sort of outcome, basically, which is a functioning ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Now, you were recently up at Kendall Mountain Festival, Sophie, with your book, mm. which has become quite a controversial landscape in itself. Beautiful, but sort of um, ecologically barren. Was there much talk of beavers when you were there? Um, a very good question. I mean, a lot of people, I think, because uh, uh, I've sort of not pigeonholed myself, but people associate um me with beavers sometimes and so they did want to always approach the topic of beavers but what was really lovely is it's always from a curiosity and kind of fascination point of view so I think people have just heard over the last 18 months or so so much about beavers so much excitement so much intrigue so much new information about these animals that they really want to talk about them and they want to have a conversation and I think because areas of the Lake District have suffered so much from flooding you know headline news Mm. level flooding that it's interesting to start seeing how people are are linking beavers and flooding together and looking to beavers as a oh I've actually heard that beavers might help with flooding and so there wasn't it was very light-hearted kind of jovial talk but I think the fact that it's on people's minds up there is very exciting fantastic yeah I bet and it's always a joy to be able to tell them more about it isn't it so tell us about our guest today Well, um, I'm so pleased to be able to introduce Lee Schofield, who is a senior RSPB site manager in the Lake District. And he's also the author of the wonderful book, Wild Fell, Fighting for Nature on a Lake District Hill Farm, which was highly commended in the latest Wainwright Prize. The book explores the fragility of the British countryside and discusses the many impacts that humans and farming, particularly in Cumbria, have had on the nature and wildlife up there. And he also reflects on the things that are being done and could potentially be done to create a landscape that works for everyone, both nature and people. So Lee, welcome to the Lodgecast. It's amazing to have you. How are you doing? Very good. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're welcome. So um, before we get into the meat of the interview, we're going to do our fact off. Now, this is just lighthearted fun where Eva and I go against each other to deliver the best, most interesting beaver fact, however weird and wonderful they might be. And then you have to decide which one you prefer or think is most interesting. So I'm going to kick off with uh, with poo, uh, as it happens. Um, so, hey. Obviously. Obviously. Um, I don't know why I keep finding these sorts of facts. But anyway, here we go. So did you know that beavers have two types of poo? So one originates deep within the cecum, which is a feature of herbivores that have one stomach. And this one consists of highly digested fibrous food. And the other is more coarse, fibrous kind of it's a it's a fibrous mass basically which has made its journey through the small and large intestines and these ones are short thick and according to our very esteemed uh head of restoration in beaver trust roisin campbell palmer 
In her textbook, this one is described as having a hint of a point at one end. And um, they, they poo in the water and not within their lodging burrows. So sequel poo is re-ingested like guinea pigs do. They eat their own poo to enable the beavers to absorb proteins and vitamins. So the bottom line is that beavers have two types of poo. Bottom and one has, a, hey, <laughs> one has a hint of a point. So that's my fact. Over to you, Eva. Rest that is an me. excellent fact. Okay, so my fact is about the giant beaver, so um, which is really awesome. So Trogantherium, the giant beaver, was present in eastern and southeastern England since the late Pliocene, around to around four hundred thousand years ago. But not only are there also remains of castor fiber, which is the modern day beaver, in the same region from the late Pliocene. So those two species coexisted, which is a bit cool. But what is more, stone tools signal the presence of humans as early as 700,000 years ago. So early humans lived alongside the giant beaver for many millennia. What an image. Which kind of blows my mind a bit. Because the giant beaver, I think, are about two and a half metres high. Is that right? They are enormous. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Huge. Is there one of those in the Natural History Museum? I feel like maybe I've seen one and just how gigantic it is. Oh, wow. Producer Emma, can we organise a school trip? <laughs> um, trip. Um, and you know the exciting thing about those two facts together is to consider how enormous the giant beaver poos were oh and, and hello hadn't thought about that. whether they were more Leaf or less pointy yeah i think i think from, i from think it's on, more than a hint of a point on the giant beaver most certainly yeah probably quite dangerous well uh so, so what are you going for i i do you know what I think that the the whole two kinds of poo thing is fascinating, but it's not that extraordinary, is it? Rabbits do it and other things. So I, I think the fact that kind of our distant ancestors lived alongside those beaver giants is probably my my favourite mm. of the two facts. But um, yeah, I think we should give more Fair thought play. to oh, what well. the giant beaver nice poos one, were like, really. Yeah, <laughs> giant beaver food. Absolutely piece. colossal. Well, uh, brilliant. Thank you for thank you for partaking in that little that's the little segment. Part that, done. that is the important. Part. So, you can I go can now. now. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, rightly, uh, we have so much that we want to talk to you about, but um, let's start with your book, Wild Fell. Now, it's your first book, and you've had so much experience in the field uh, in your work. How was it distilling this? career that you've built before Wildfell into a narrative that's just so beautiful and impactful? Um, it was a lot of fun, actually, particularly the first part of it. Um, the, I found the writing actually quite easy because it's it's stuff that, you know, I've done myself. It's my own experiences and it's a whole series of things that I'm incredibly passionate about. So it just kind of seemed to fall out of my head onto the page really to, to, to be honest which is that doesn't mean, mean don't mean that's a sound of smug thing at all it, it just really took me by surprise just how easily it seemed to flow but then the really difficult mm. bit is 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 kind of shaping it and crafting it you know the stuff that kind of fell out of my head onto the page was probably terrible um and it's it's a really hard slog actually turning those kind of initial fairly disorganized thoughts into something that's actually readable for people so so yeah, it was a process that was in two halves. Really, the first half was was a lot of fun, and the and the second half was a lot of work. Um, and yeah, interesting. Now now, kind of thinking about writing a second one, the the sort of the yeah, being that much more aware of the process and what might might come is making me think sort of very differently about it. I didn't it didn't really have a very distinct beginning. Wildfell, I sort of it grew out of um, you know quite 
disjointed cathartic writings you know it started out as a as a a set of um responses to questions that I'm that might get leveled against me um and you know mm. to start with it was all really kind of angry um and and you know just a way to to kind of exercise some of my demons really um and actually through the process and reading back on some of those kind of an early quite angry thoughts you kind of question whether you really think like that and it, I think it probably made me more kind of accepting of other points of view and being able to kind of look at myself from from outside if you like uh, was a really really useful process mm, wow that sounds really incredible actually fascinating process to go through yeah, yeah. I'm sure one you can relate to Sophie <laughs> a little fellow <laughs> author um so Lee you're on a bit of a rediscovery journey I'm told what what is so special about Horsewater and the uplands and can you tell us a little bit about what you actually work on landscape wise so um we are the the farming tenants we being the RSPB so I'm the site manager for the RSPB at Horsewater uh and we've got tenancy of two farms Nadal and Swindale which together with their associated common land cover around about 3,000 hectares so it's a it's a pretty good chunk of land as far as nature reserves go it's also quite small in the overall sort of lake district context so it's about one percent of the the whole national park we're the tenants of united utilities so they are the water company for northwest england and they own the horsewater catchment and all the land that surrounds it which extends to about ten thousand hectares horsewater is the most important source of drinking water in the northwest Um, and until sort of 20 years ago they didn't really think all that much about the impact of how the land was managed on the quality of the water. So, um, you know, the, the farms that they own were rented out to sort of commercially minded farming tenants um, and they farmed in a way that was pretty typical of the time. So, you know, they'd many of them had taken advantage of the government grants that encouraged intensification um, and the land had had suffered as a result of that, as, as most of the uplands did after you know, following the Second World War and that drive for food production. Um, so the vegetation yeah. was often very short. Short vegetation has very shallow roots. So um, the, the soils were vulnerable to erosion and landslides. A lot of the peat bodies had been drained, again, sort of incentivized by government. Um, and, and when water runs through a drained peatland, you know, a lot of the peat becomes very friable and, and, it, and it washes down into the reservoir. So they had sort of major issues with the the quality of the water starting to decline. But 20 years ago, working in partnership with with us as the RSPB, we sort of started trialling a different approach to land management, which became known as a Sustainable Catchment Management Programme, or SCAMP for short. Um, And that was all about changing... (laughs) Catchy. (laughs) Quite catchy, quite catchy, yeah. Um, Changing the... The, the, the sort of the way that the land was managed, reducing its intensity, encouraging natural vegetation to re-establish more structure, planting more trees to encourage uh, infiltration into the soil. Basically, just just sort of shifting the focus to think of the land as a as the primary filter for water, so that by the time it hit the reservoir or the the water courses that fed into it, um, that the water would be in a better condition than it would be and require less treatment down the pipe. So there's an obvious kind of economic benefit mm. united utilities you know it saves mm. them on saves them treatment costs um and but then there's loads and loads of environmental benefit that comes almost almost by accident um from from those same approaches so through that 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 long um sort of process that you know united utilities kind of invested in this for, for a period of a decade the two farming tenants at nadal and swindale where we're where, where we're now farming decided they didn't really want to be involved they were getting to the end of their tenancies 
they didn't want to um they didn't have any successors so they were prepared to have the last couple of years of their tenancies bought out and we took those farm tenancies on and so what we're trying to do is to sort of gold plate that scamp process if you like to to really try to demonstrate how you can manage lands to benefit water and wildlife but in a way that is also respectful to the sort of cultural heritage and the the farming practices in the area Mm. so we're doing lots of ecological restoration but we are also farming so we still have a flock of of 300 breeding ewes which is a lot less than were on the land previously but still you know they are a commercial flock and then we have cattle that we use for conservation grazing but also yield a product as well um we have some fell ponies that we use for conservation grazing and are you coming in as a previously non-resident to the area you're coming in as a sort of expert i'm just thinking about do you come up against any sort of challenges from the community about the scale of change there in terms of what they're used to to and traditions and things like that that's our biggest challenge by by a, a long chalk yeah so i'm yeah i grew up in devon um, hey. I moved up here a couple of years before I took the yeah it's the place place to have a childhood yeah so I, I moved up here a couple of years before taking on the job for the RSPB but yeah I you know I'm definitely perceived as as an offcomer and probably will always be perceived in that way even if I live here for the rest of my life you know um, and that is that is a big challenge you know there are lots of people who have a very long connection to the Lake District to the farms of Cumbria. Um, you know, maybe multiple generations of what helped to shape the land. But we're we're very careful to say that what we're doing is appropriate for our land because of our particular context. When you know, although we mm. would very much like other people to take a similar approach, we're not trying to impose it on anybody. We don't have the mechanism to impose it on anybody. Mm. You know, it is it is farmers and land managers, be they tenants or owners or whatever, that that have the management control. It's up to them to decide what they do. What I hope we're doing at Horsewater is sort of demonstrating a range of options that other farmers can can come and look at, can decide whether they like or not, and maybe try to do similar mm. things at their place. But, you know, because we've got this incredibly source, important source of drinking water, because we're an H conservation organisation, our motivations are, you know, quite different from others. So yeah. as long as yeah, we make sure. sure that what we're doing doesn't impact on our neighbours in a negative way, then then we're kind of free to do it. And yes, there are people that don't like it. But actually, there are a huge number of people that really do and really recognise that we need to be making our uplands work better for nature, better better for Just the climate. Just to spell it out, why don't they like it? What is it that's concerning them? Because we've heard we heard in our previous episode about um, farming really coming together as a local, locally driven um, regenerative practices. You know that the the very energetic movement that's almost happening around in farming now. What is it? Can you spell it out from the concern side of things in, in the Lake Street? I mean, I think it's. I think people generally find change quite difficult. Um, I think, or some people do anyway. Um, I think the Lake District is perceived as being this. You know, to some people, it's sort of this perfect vision of what the British upland landscape should look like. The fact that it is actually ecologically quite knackered is difficult for some people to stomach, particularly people who don't really have that much of an understanding of ecology and just assume that the hills have been been like they are today forever. But then it's also about people's livelihoods. You know, there's it, it's farming that has sustained many people living and working in this landscape for a long time. And it's quite an easy assumption to think that livestock volume relates to livestock income and livestock profit. Actually, that isn't really the case. Like, And many studies have shown this, you know, carrying more livestock 
then the landscape can sort of naturally carry. You know, the moment you have to start bringing in synthetic feedstuffs and fertilizers and, and, and pesticides, actually, it's very unlikely to be making money through the livestock by themselves. It's the grants that provide the means to kind of stay viable. But that assumption is, is is pretty hardwired. You know, people think I'm making money out of sheep when actually they're kind of often making money out of the grants. So any suggestion that they should reduce those sheep numbers or other livestock numbers is seen as as kind of working against their sort of economic well-being, if you like. And yeah, that's understandably very challenging for some people. Was it very hardly to persevere with something that you you value so highly? You know, if you're getting if you're getting opposition to the work you're doing, and you know that it's good work, and you know it's going to have positive effects on the ecology, on the biodiversity, and in time, perhaps even the community. How did you find? I guess how did you stay motivated to carry on yeah. doing what you're doing? Um, yeah, it, it it was definitely really hard. Um, so I write about that in the book a little bit. So the book the book is you know it's the yeah. ecological story, but it's also the personal story and the and the challenges of of doing this kind of work in what is a really contested landscape and you know I, I came very close to giving up on more than one occasion you know there were there were sort of members very vocal members of the farming community openly expressing their hostility to us big neighboring landowners our local mp rory stewart uh, was really critical in in the local press and you know all of that stuff felt very kind of personal because I was one of like three people working at Horswell at the time and I was the site manager so you know I felt like the the kind of human shield that was taking all this stuff and we're a long way mm. from RSPB headquarters so you know it was it was really isolating um, and my mental health took a real battering and I'm quite open about that in the book as well I had to you know get some professional help yeah. and I did various things to kind of build my resilience. Um, you know, running really helped me. Actually, run, being able to see that you can improve your performance made me realise that I was in control of some things in my life, whereas all of that kind of opposition made me feel that I really wasn't. And so mm. that that gave me a huge boost. But I think the most important thing was basically kind of filtering what were effectively a very small number of voices out and tuning in to the much larger constituency of people that were really behind us. Um, and it's mm. a real frustration of mine, actually, that we, as a species, I think, as a society, whatever, we're pretty quick to express our dislike for something, but we don't anything like as frequently so express our support. Um, so, yeah. you know, I had to make the assumption that the 1.1 million members or whatever the RSPB had at, at, at that time were probably well behind us. And likewise, the many people who are members of the Wildlife Trust and, you know, people who are passionate about nature, which is, let's face it, probably most people in the UK. Mm, um, and yeah. the people who were kind of causing us a, a, a real grief were, were important and their views were valid, but they were in the minority. Mm. Um, and so I started building a kind of a, a, a network with other conservationists, um, other people at government agencies, people who were basically kind of fighting the same fight that I was just to kind of yeah. build us a bit of a support network. So that gave us the opportunity to learn from each other, to visit each other's sites, see what was working, see what wasn't working, but also just to kind of vent a bit of spleen and, and uh, you know, enjoy <laughs> each other's company. And, I, you know, that that network is is still, it's very informal. You know, it's not, I think we have a name, but we don't really have any kind of constitution. It's just a group of like-minded mm. friends that are doing similar mm. jobs, kind of hanging out with each other. Um, and I, yeah, that's that's made a huge difference. There's immense value and strength in a bunch of like-minded people Definitely. when you're facing something like that, I think. Definitely, yeah. 
yeah, we're much stronger together. What an amazing story. Amazing. Yeah, I mean, so we've Thank talked you. about a lot already. We've talked about uh, the difficulty that, that we often have in embracing change and, and all these things. And so there's many parallels that we can draw with beaver reintroduction in England, especially. How are you approaching beaver conservation specifically at, at Horsewater? And you've slightly answered this already, but, you know, as, as you well know, with, with beaver reintroduction, they can divide opinion. And so what lessons have you learned from your work at Horsewater and the obstacles that you've overcome that you could perhaps apply to to species reintroductions like the beaver so i think we are a little bit further back on our plans for beaver reintroduction than i would like us to be um so there is an enclosed beaver release site just down the valley for us on the lowther estate um, who we work in in close partnership with and we were preparing a license application at the same time as they were and we were just about to pop it in the post and United Utilities, our landlord, who who we work in, you know, a very close collaboration with at Horsewater, basically just asked that we we put the brakes on. They were concerned at the time that the sort of the the vocal minority might might generate a whole load of flat for them. They're a big organisation. They have to operate with with kind of people's support, and so they just asked us to kind of go a little bit a little bit slower. So. In that intervening time, obviously the, uh, the you know the government strategy has been published, um, and I think the position we're in now is really we'd like to wait until free living licenses can be applied for, and and have them jump straight to that stage rather than going for the for the fenced option. There's mm. another enclosed release in South Cumbria, um, and over in the west at Wildenadale, they're busy carrying out a consultation at the moment for a very large scale enclosed but sort of partially enclosed release where they're looking at multiple pairs. So whether people like it or not, beavers are on their way back in Cumbria. So yeah, we, we're really very keen to have beavers back in the landscape at Horsewater. So a big part of our work is wetland restoration. So we're blocking up dams, um, particularly in kind of peatland areas. Beavers would do that work for us for free and more effectively, and they would maintain the dams in perpetuity um so you know just as a kind of effort saving device we would we would love to see beavers mm. back but but obviously that you know the, the biodiversity explosion that happens when beavers come back to a to a landscape i've been really lucky to to witness in various places around the uk so yeah we we desperately want them back we're hoping that to be be able to put in a license application sometime fairly soon for free living release in terms of how we're going to interact with people the lowther estate just down the valley have a fenced project fence beaver enclosure and a lot of consultation was carried out around about that time um, and that was led by heather devi i don't know if you spoke to heather spoken with heather on this yet but you should we should get her on the, um, the launch mm, cast there you are heather there's an invite um, <laughs> heather heather is absolutely brilliant and you know the thing that she did which i think was really important and perhaps a little bit different to other consultations was was that she really lent into the positive voices and she recorded the positivity mm. as well as what well, were actually a really quite small number of dissenting voices um and and collated that into a report that that showed just how much enthusiasm there was for beavers returning to our part of the world most of the negative comments were actually why on earth are they going inside a fence you know we want to see these beavers back mm. in the wider landscape not in an enclosed project so a mm. lot of that, because that's just down the valley for us, that consultation will, will count for us too, actually. You know, these are still local stake, local stakeholders. Mm. I think sometimes we, we risk over-consulting. 
we find the same answers again and again and again and we need people to feel engaged and involved but Mm. by giving an opportunity for people to express their dislike of stuff we just kind of bring that minority view out again and again and it it kind of strengthens and reinforces it but we need to recognize that it, it really is a minority and the appetite in the general public for for this kind of stuff is just absolutely enormous it's very interesting, isn't it? Because you have to, we, it's really important to listen to what that minority concern is because it's still a valid concern. But if you, as you say, if you forget the majority as well and just focus on that, it can be quite misleading and, and swing in the wrong direction. Um, you just spoke about the biodiversity explosions you've seen around Britain. Have you seen a beaver? And if so, can you tell us about your favourite beaver experience in Cumbria or, or in Britain? Uh, have I... I haven't actually seen one in the flesh in Cumbria. Um, I've visited their oh, no. their their That's sites several times, but yeah, they've always eluded me. And you know, I, you know, I, I know how much they value their privacy. Um, yeah. <laughs> in the uh, the um, the end of Loctay near Killin, so my wife's uncle and aunt live up there, and they um they they have a bit of river frontage, and they get beavers coming like onto their what is their lawn effectively on a pretty regular wow. basis. Um, oh, but yeah, nice, just at the just yeah, it's really nice. But just at where the, uh, the the rivers enter the lock, at the the sort of the western end of Loch Tay, there's a fantastic lodge on an island, um, just sort of five ten minute walk from from Killin down the footpath. And I've been there three or four times, and every time seeing beavers coming out, and it's fantastic. And and just so many people don't realise that they're there. You know, people just kind of paddling p- past, and the lodge is like massive. It's been there for like ten or fifteen years now. Nice. Um, it's absolutely spectacular, <laughs> oh, wow, and you see people paddling past and you're just like look at that thing over there it's like how can <laughs> how can how can you miss it but um yeah so that's my that's my favored beaver spotting spot excellent lovely i love a big lodge right there's a, there's also a really good beaver deceiver right next to the national cycleway that uh, again probably people just cycle past and don't realize but it's the first time i'd seen one like in active use the beavers had obviously flooded the cycleway which is really popular um, and so mm. very, very skilled deployment of a beaver deceiver that seemed to be working absolutely perfectly. Oh, brilliant. A flow device, otherwise known as. <laughs> beaver deceiver is much more catchy, isn't it? It is, isn't it? Memorable. <laughs> so where are we going next? So, well, there's, there's so much. So, we've got so many questions here that we want to talk to you about. But one thing that I um, would love to hear from you, Lee, is, and I read this again, actually, in... Amy Jane Beers, but the flow where she recalled this this anecdote that that you had about re-wiggling, and I might word this really badly, so please just jump in and, and save me. But you talk about re-wiggling the watercourses at Horswater, and something about you kind of were trying to decanalize an area of water, and then a storm came, and you were worried that it was all going to ruin it, and that, that you sort of flushed away important things that you'd worked hard to to sort of restore. But then it actually had almost healed itself and re-wiggled itself after a little bit of intervention do you know which what I'm talking about here can you yes so so when we took on the uh when we took on the tenancies of the farms 11 years ago Swindale which is this just absolutely stunning picture postcard Lake District sort of glacially carved valley Mm -hmm. had a river running down the middle of it that was like a canal it had been straightened at least a couple of hundred years ago so the people living in the valley you know were having to eke out a pretty marginal existence in a really challenging place um, and one of the things they did to facilitate their survival effectively was to straighten the river in order to reduce the risk of their hay meadows flooding during the summer 
Um, so the upper catchment of Swindale is, is massive. There's about 950 hectares that all flows down into this very sort of narrow, confined valley. So flooding in the winter is always a massive problem. But because the hay crop would have been taken by then, that that wasn't such a big problem for, for the farmers there. But if they lost the crop to a flood in the summer, then you know there's no option for them to nip out and buy a load more hay like we can do now. So they had to go to you know massive lengths to to straighten this river, to embank it, to build levees either side, so the water would just kind of rush off downstream through the valley as quickly as possible and reduce that that risk of flooding mm. for them. And that, of course, made total sense at the time. You know, they had no choice but to do that really in order to to, to survive in that in that place. So we looked at that river when we came in, and we worked with various partners, even Rivers Trust and the Environment Agency, Natural England, to to devise a plan for. For putting the bends back into it, for renaturalizing it, you know, in its straightened form, the water flowed very, very quickly. So it picked up all the the kind of small, medium-sized gravel that salmon and trout need to spawn, and just left a bed that was comprised only of just massive rocks. Yeah. So it was a really stunted habitat. All the trees had been felled along the banks years ago, so the water was very hot. The only place you ever saw a salmon was underneath the metal bridge, because mm. um, that was the only place that, that that provided any shade. The water flowing so quickly meant there were no aquatic plants that could establish because they were just ripped out every time the, the water came through in a spate. So, you know, it was it was knackered. The levees that had been built up meant that when the water did flood in the winter months, the water would sit on the floodplain and wouldn't be able to flow back into the river again. Yeah. So it wasn't really working very well for the meadows either side by that point either. So we're obviously in a very different time now to when that river was first straightened and and we are not as reliant on that hay crop as those people were. You know, we mm. do still make hay in those meadows and we feed it to our livestock and they're you know fantastically rich in wildflowers but actually if we lose the crop we can go and buy some from somewhere else and we're also getting compensated through a stewardship scheme to manage those hay meadows in a, in a, in a way that is sympathetic to nature right so actually you know we don't need to maintain them as well so so working with those other partners we we we, we made a plan to to restore those meanders and just to slow the flow of water so that there was a natural flooding regime that was restored. The water could get out onto the floodplain and back into the river again. And yeah, it was quite hard work, you know, unstraightening a river yeah. in a wet place like the Lake District is 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 really mm. tricky. You know, you've got the holes that you're digging just being flooded all of the time. Um, you know, machines getting stuck, you know, pumps having to be borrowed from places and yeah, being very mindful that we didn't want to contribute any silt or sediment into the stream further down. So so it had to be really careful. It took sort of three or four months. Um, and the episode that you're referring to in the book is, is basically kind of right at the end of that mm. process. So we connected in the old river, the straightened river, into this new wiggly course. And then the job that would come after would be to fill the straightened channel back in again. But as we plumbed it back in, we we basically kind of went home for the weekend. It was a, it was a Friday and we we're thinking, thank goodness, you know, we've almost finished this, this quite epic struggle. Um, and then on the next day, it started raining incredibly heavily and stayed raining oh, wow. for the entire weekend. <laughs> and the whole of the valley was completely flooded underwater. And so you can imagine we just cut this new wiggly channel. So the banks were really unconsolidated. And just we were worried that the soil pile that was still waiting to be put back into the straightened channel would just be washed yeah. away. And it was really, it was incredibly stressful. You know, a huge amount mm. of money had been spent on this. And it just felt like maybe nature was just kind of undoing all of our hard work. But we came back in on the Monday morning um, and the water level had subsided and we found just the river had had basically just completely restored itself. Oh, amazing. So the channel that we'd cut was very, very coarse. You know, we hadn't put any features in. There were no gravel bars or riffles or pools or any of that stuff. 
and some of the areas were quite uh, sort of silty and they didn't have a gravel bed in them. And over the course of that weekend, the whole of the bed of that channel was lined with the most kind of pristine, shining Amazing. gravel that you could imagine. Um, all of these features that a natural river should have were just, you know, were just there. They just wow. appeared. Um, and, you know, I've never seen nature just kind of take charge in that way. And, yeah, we none of us working on the project could believe it, really. It was just it was absolutely spectacular. And as that river has continued to develop, you know, it's become richer and richer. Salmon came back. They were spawning back in the beck within about three months of the machines leaving the site. And, they, you know, there was no opportunity for them to spawn there previously. Um, now there's, you know, there's plants growing out of the, the, the bed. And it's, yeah, it's just so much more diverse than it ever used to be. That's an absolutely stunning vision. <laughs> Wonderful. And and the really great thing, actually, sorry, just one more on, on river restoration. The great thing is, is that we're part of a, a really thriving movement in Cumbria, river restoration. Um, and last night we picked up the European River Prize. Oh, congratulations. Um, for, yeah, well um, done you. Yeah, it's a huge accolade, actually. And that, so that's the whole partnership. That's Environment Agency, Amazing. Natural England, the Three Rivers Trusts in Cumbria, us and the National Trust. And we've been working together now for... 10 or 15 years and delivered some really big scale projects that have just brought life back to, to miles and miles and miles of channel that were that were previously just sad canals. So amazing. Um, river restoration is just the most exciting bit of conservation you could possibly be involved in, probably. Sure other is. than beaver restoration, beaver reintroduction. Good save. Well, they come <laughs> hand in hand, I think, to be fair. It's it's part one and the same thing for us. But um yeah. <laughs> So a really quick um, question, because I think it's really important to look at. It's that's an absolutely beautiful vision and really exciting that it's you've made it happen. We touched briefly in, in, a, in a previous episode on green finance, and I would love to ask you in, in a quick question, are subsidies a necessary part of delivering that vision? What's the financial reality for the project and for the farming community around it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think the direction of travel that the, the, the sort of government support is going is one that will hopefully see more and more of this kind of thing. So the money that's been pouring into marginal farming for the last sort of 70 years has delivered some good things. Certainly, you know, high level stewardship has delivered some real improvements, but a huge amount of that money has basically just propped up unsustainable farming. And now with the focus being on public payments for public goods, we should see much more of this and we should see farming reducing in its intensity, reducing the inputs, farming in the uplands, particularly sort of within the land's natural carrying capacity. And if that takes place, as I hope it will, then there will be a whole lot of environmental improvement that will be delivered almost by hmm. accident. You know, I think the mind shift that really has to happen is to thinking about biodiversity, thinking about carbon access, water quality improvement as products from the landscape mm. alongside livestock so that is the way that we think about it and we receive a payment for producing those things and I feel completely comfortable about that you know my taxes your taxes going to pay for those sorts of things that benefit all of us to me feels absolutely right and what mm. a sensible society should be doing my money our taxpayers money going in to support unsustainable farming does not feel right to me um, and so that that shift can't really happen soon enough and people say well what about the farmers and what about their livelihoods you know this this will support people's livelihoods when we started at Horswater, we had three members of staff and a farming contractor we now have 12 members of staff 
and we're about to recruit another 10. Wow. So by sort of February, March next year, we're going to have 22 people working, Amazing. funded through the kinds of things that, um, you know, through the kinds of funding streams the government say they want much more of. And yeah, we're not, you know, we're not traditional farmers cut from that kind of stereotypical cloth, but we are rural residents. Our kids are in the schools. We spend a hell of a lot of money with local suppliers. So, you know, I, I, I just see no real downside to that approach personally. Good answer. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. I mean, um, you've touched on it throughout really, but but what gives you hope for the future of the British countryside, Lee? Um, so, I mean, I'm really, I'm really lucky. I'm really privileged to have a job where I can kind of see this stuff happening before my eyes you know we we know what to do we can heal our ravaged landscapes and we can do so in a way which will lock up more carbon and and make wildlife and wildlife habitats more resilient to climate change that knowledge that expertise is throughout the uk you know we're so lucky to have organizations like the rspb and the wildlife trusts and so many other fantastic charities that, that are the, the the repositories of this information if we can couple that with making it financially attractive to make those kinds of changes, which is what governments say they want to do, then it could be transformational. Mm. It really could. So, I, you know, I think there are reasons to be optimistic. It's 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 easy to feel gloomy about the state of things. You know, the, the graphs are still plummeting downwards, but you know, I'm seeing more and more people grasping the nettle mm. and making big changes, and that's not just those environmental organizations that's farmers too you know the, there is genuinely a revolution yeah. happening and yeah i think if we play our cards right we we, we could be on the cusp of something really quite exciting Ooh. amazing well that's you've been a huge inspiration today all, all your all your um you really have information experience so we really appreciate that but i think that's all we've got time for very sadly i think we could talk for another hour easily on all of this it's fascinating stuff but thank you so much for um, for joining us and giving your time today. Yeah, thank you, Lee, and thank you for your work. It's amazing, very inspiring. My pleasure. Oh, that was so inspiring. I thought, what a man. Yeah, what an experience he's been through—a journey of nature restoration and, and landscape you know, transformation. It sounds it was. I, I was really captivated by the actual the river re meandering and nature taking hold and it being a mm. success. That was, I really felt that it was great. Mm, well and also just his huge experience in meeting opposition and hitting rock bottom with that but then coming out on the other side even more motivated and mission-led in his work and mm. you know how many more people they're recruiting to work on Hallswater and it just feels like there's this really exciting uprising in the best way of working for and alongside nature but not at the you know bringing farming alongside that conversation um, totally. and not pushing it aside so yeah really really special to chat to someone who's in both camps as it another were. fascinating interview basically yes <laughs> lucky us <laughs> and now it is time for the quiz segment so i have oh. a fun quiz for you in our final episode of this series oh. it's all about castor canadensis sorry so castor canadensis that's some kind of spell from hogwarts <laughs> So it is the second of the two species of beaver that exist in the world today. And it oh, probably should have known that. resides in North America. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's the Eurasian beaver's North American cousin. But it's, you know, that's the loose theme. Let's just leave it at that. Right. Okay. <laughs> Question. Hit me. <laughs> you know, 
Question number one is on the distribution of Castor Canadensis. Oh. <laughs> and it's multiple choice, don't, don't panic. So back in the day, when before, before um, hunting really took hold and they were, uh, their numbers plummeted, they were found everywhere. A, from the pole to the top of the South American continent. B, south of the, Ant- uh, south of the Arctic tundra to the deserts of northern Mexico. Or C, south of the Arctic tundra to Arizona and what is now the Apache National Forest. Uh, crikey. Well, um, I'm going to say A because I like to believe that beavers are adept in all environments. That's a, a lovely argument. Um, unfortunately, it was B. So they were <laughs> <laughs> ubiquitous south of the Arctic tundra to the deserts of northern Mexico, which is pretty a pretty massive area. That's still pretty, pretty large, yeah. yeah it's okay. pretty large. Nice. Question two. Pre-fur trade, about 200 million beavers were across North America, 60 million of those in Canada. But due to the over-exploitation... This number reduced to approximately how many in Canada at its lowest point? Was it A, mm. 1 million, B, 250,000, or C, just 100,000? Ooh, um, I'm going to go uh, 250, 250,000. So it was actually C, only 100,000 <gasps> beavers roughly oh, remained. I was trying to be optimistic. That's, oh, quite, that's, that's a, a huge dent in the population. It's a pretty impressive dent and a pretty impressive recovery as well um, from, from yes. that number. And Very now beaver. question number three is all on the coins. So oh. the... <laughs> Unlikely <laughs> to save myself <laughs> with this one. <laughs> the Canadian nickel the five cent piece still carries a beaver as its symbol but what in what year was that first used was it 1858 when canada first minted coins 1922 or 1937 uh 18 something the 18 one 1858 unfortunately this is a hard quiz i feel terrible i mean it's it couldn't be more educational let's let's say that it was actually, so 1858, they did first mint coins and those were crossed maples. But in 1937, mm. um, the beaver first appeared on the nickel and it's now, it's still there and it's now the smallest value coin in their currency. Oh, well, I wish I could. There you uh, are. I, I wish I had one. <laughs> Some um, really useful <laughs> facts. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. I, I, I couldn't be less pleased with my performance, but... <laughs> Um, I appreciate the effort that went into that uh, that geographical spread of beaver (laughs) knowledge. Thank you. And it's time to welcome producer Emma into the room with us. Come on, out your box. (laughs) Out you come. Come on. (laughs) Here she comes. Have you enjoyed the series, Emma? Uh, Do you know what? I've loved this series. It's been a really cool opportunity to dig really quite deeply into a very exciting area of well, nature restoration and farming. I mean, that, that intersection's just been so interesting. Yeah, I I really like the new format. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but more importantly, of course, how do you think you've both done in terms of fact off and quizzes this uh, this year? Oh, I, I think I, I've been I, quite lucky on the fact off because they weren't all that, you know, <laughs> strong. I think I've spent my whole time either congratulating Eva or or commiserating in my own failure. So I, I do not feel hopeful. I mean, yesterday I optimistically wrote a, uh, a tiebreaker, but I can tell you now that it is not required, not by a long shot. Right. <laughs> okay. um, 
it was a bit of a washout, actually. <laughs> the beavers did not slow the flow of this, <laughs> no, of this one. Uh, okay, so for the fact of we had five people voting and it, <laughs> Sophie, you won one <laughs> and Eva who, won four. Who vote, who, do you remember who voted for me? Sarah, Sarah was in your corner, think, wasn't it? Was it? Oh, Sarah was in your Sarah. corner. But I, I have to admit, um, whoever won the episode with the Sams had, I think, had an advantage because I maybe should have made sure that you both had different facts for each Sam. I know, but I feel like the ball of beavers was just such an image that it was, oh, it it was, it was, absolutely, it was absolutely captivating. I feel like uh, Sam Brian Evans particularly enjoyed that win. one. Oh, that's very generous. Very generous, Sophie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think we've got miles to go with Beaver Fact Off, haven't we? So many more left. Well, <laughs> run and run. Really? I certainly think we'll try. <laughs> and then for the quizzes, <laughs> for the quizzes, Eva, you're you're throwing out some really tricky quizzes these days. There was no way Sophie could come back. Eva, you you got four questions correct over the series, and Sophie only managed two. <laughs> oh no! I feel like the cast of Canadensis was a bit harsh. I mean, considering I, really I had no idea stuff. what you were talking about as soon as you said cast of Canadensis. <laughs> really a strong start for uh, uh, someone who's meant to be knowledgeable about these things (laughs) save it for the fact off Eva (laughs) (laughs) oh well a hearty a hearty well done to you a big well done all round either way another great series under our belts how democratic thank you (laughs) well done (laughs) us before I pop back in my box um I've got one Uh, final uh, little surprise I guess a a little bit of a gift because it's the last episode of this series we had a really nice chat with Lee earlier today and found out off camera or off mic that actually he's a bit of a singer-songwriter among his many other mm. accolades. So Amazing. as we sign off the series... Tell us more. He has... Well, he sings and he plays guitar and he's released some wonderful <laughs> <Right>. music. <laughs> <laughs> he's released some really beautiful music and is very kindly allowing us to share some of his work. So listeners, if you stick around to the very end of the episode, I'm going to pop in part of one of his brilliant songs called Babbling Vowels. I personally find it really peaceful and really soothing. It's a little bit like going for a walk in a green space. That's how it makes me feel. And if you enjoy it, you can head over to Spotify and listen to his whole album, which is titled And the Countryside. So I do hope you stick around to enjoy that. Oh, that sounds very lovely. It really does. And a a fitting way to end. But I tell you what, though, we have covered huge mileage in this series, haven't we, Sophie? Gosh, we really have. I mean, they've just been such fantastic and interesting discussions i really hope that that they'll be useful for for listeners who perhaps kind of debuting their experience of the lodgecast all those who have um you know been listeners for a while but then there have been some unanswered questions so far up until this point about beavers and farming um as the world has been changing very very fast um ever since we release the other series but Hopefully they're, you know, fun and, and interesting as well. And um, most importantly, show that beavers and farming can work together, even for those of us who don't have land or farms. Yes. And for those who might have only joined this episode, should we take a quick look back and, and some of the highlights of the series and what we've discovered? Yeah, go for it. So we started off, didn't we, with the steps to getting beavers back on your land as a farmer and chatted to Sarah Langford about the sort of growing energy and the shifting in farming and nature discussion in the, in the UK, which was really fascinating. Yeah, it was really lovely to have uh, such a positive reflection on where farming is at the moment and where it's going from Sarah. And it felt like a very local story as well, the, the drawing together of local strands, which was uh, something that wove through all the interviews, I think. Yeah, I think so. And I think all the way through this series, actually, it's been really lovely to engage with real people and remind ourselves that real people are behind all of these really important conversations. 
Yes. And yeah, and in episode two, we chatted to, to, to the Sams of Clinton, Devon Estates, which was really interesting. And For the Sam Bites. The, the Sam Bites, indeed. I really appreciated their, their honesty, really, in terms of the reality of having these beavers suddenly on their land in a very busy, um, now famous catchment in the River Otter down in East Devon um, and the trade-offs that can work out well um, if they're managed correctly. Yeah, and importance of understanding that the operations of the beaver and how uh, one thing that struck me that in that interview with Sam Bryant Evans was the if you disturb the beaver, they're going to move somewhere else mm. nearby and start their operations there and their, their impact there. So it's you can't just sort of put a sticking plaster on it. You have to think about it in a system, systemic way, which is very, very interesting to think about. And then in episode three, we looked at the challenges and advice for farmers with mm. beavers, speaking to Natural England and Delphine Puget, which was really great, actually. It was very eye-opening and honest about the complexity of um, the operation behind the scenes to get a wild release policy out for beavers across England. Yeah, and it was really interesting to hear about the money side of things, because obviously that's a question we get a lot in terms of this all sounds really good, but how do we finance this? So to hear that from Delphine was was really useful and encouraging to hear that there's plans in place and they seem really motivated to get the best outcome for both beavers and landowners. Exactly, yeah. And finally, it was really special actually to chat to Lee at the end because he was a great person to, to tie all these themes together in terms of finding a balance between conservation and working with farming and land ownership and land tenancy. Absolutely. And of course, Beaver Trust um, spans all of this work. And remember, if you know people who are interested in considering beavers on their land, or if you are a farmer um, and you're concerned about it or you have questions, please do get in touch with us because we're really, really happy to be here to support um, beaver introduction across Britain. Yeah, absolutely. We've got a fantastic, highly experienced restoration team headed up by Dr. Rasheen Campbell-Palmer, who is really experienced in all of these things throughout Europe. And um, she and her team will provide advice and guidance. And we're here to help and make this journey as uh, informative and beneficial as possible for, for all involved. Well, that is sadly all we've got time for this series of The Lodgecast. It's flown by. I've loved this one. I have to. Yeah, yeah. It's really good stuff. Really good stuff. Well, I mean, listeners, gosh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed this series as much as we have. But if you, you know, it's it's not over yet. If you haven't heard our other podcasts, we've got three other chocker block series for you that you can go back and listen to, in which we spoke to some brilliant people, including Simon Reeve, Gillian Burke, Yolo Williams, and Dr. Amir Khan, about all things from eco-anxiety to the climate crisis to green prescriptions and connecting to nature and all that, all that good stuff. So do go back and check those out. In fact, make sure you have subscribed to the Lodgecast on your podcast platform of choice so that you don't miss our next series. And for the last time this series, please do consider leaving us a five-star review as it really helps new audiences learn all about beavers. We won't settle for anything less. And anyway, as always, you can get more from Beaver Trust. Just search at Beaver Trust on Instagram, Twitter and YouTube or head over to our website, beavertrust.org and sign up for our free email newsletter. And now we'll leave you with a little of Lee Schofield from the album And the Countryside. I've built some machines to record my words and play them back to me taste and a preference for late night nonsense but life
as always is a mixture of fact and opinion it was hosted by sophie pavel and eva bishop it was produced and edited by emma brisdian for beaver trust 